Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Hello and welcome to the HR and Employment Law Podcast. Um, I'm Alison. Thank you very much for tuning in again to listen to this episode 10 of the podcast. I hope that you are enjoying the podcast and that you find the information useful. And if this is your first time tuning in, thank you very much for listening. The format of the show is that I tell you a bit about employment law or a recent change to the law or some useful information that could help you. And then I go on to tell you about my best practice HR tip. So just giving you a tip to make your life easier. The podcast is aimed to be fairly straightforward, easy to understand, and hopefully you'll get some useful information from it without being baffled by legal jargon. Before I get into the content for this week's podcast, I did just want to mention um, something which I've been celebrating this week, and that is that Real Employment Law Advice is one year old. Um, On the 1st of November 2013, I was granted authorisation by the Solicitors Regulation Authority to set up my practice. I'm really pleased to have reached that one year mark. I don't quite know where the time's gone, but I've been really um, privileged to work with some lovely people both employers and employees throughout that time, and also to bring you this podcast. So I hope that you enjoy it and um, hopefully I'll be around for many more years to come. What I'm going to talk to you about in today's episode is something which is literally hot off the press. As I'm recording this podcast, it was actually yesterday, the 4th of November, that the decision was announced from the Employment Appeal Tribunal. And you may very well have heard about it on the news. And um, certainly it's a hot newsworthy topic. So um, if you haven't, um, where have you been? Um, If you have heard of it, hopefully this podcast will give you a little bit more information and elaborate more on the headlines that you might have heard on the news. And this is in relation to some cases which were combined. I won't give you the full names of the cases, but I will put them in the show notes, which you can find at adviceforemployers.co.uk forward slash podcast. Basically, what it was were several cases which were all surrounding the similar or same point that were decided by the Employment Appeal Tribunal. And the issue that they were dealing with was in relation to holiday pay. Now, for a bit of background, within UK employment law, holiday is dealt with in the working time regulations. And the working time regulations give effect to European legislation. And basically they set out how um, how holidays to be dealt with, um, the amount of holiday that employees are entitled to have and all of those sorts of things. So under the working time regulations, employees are entitled to four weeks paid leave from their employment. A couple of years back, the UK government introduced an additional 1.6 weeks holiday for staff in the UK. Now, this is something that was introduced by our government rather than Europe. And so therefore, what we're talking about in this ruling is in relation to the four weeks European holiday. The reason the ruling applies only to the stipulation for four weeks is because the issue is around the amount of pay that is required to be paid during those four weeks holiday. And that is dictated to us by Europe and by European legislation and interpreted by UK courts and tribunals. So what's the case about? Well, a number of employees were arguing that during their holiday period, they should actually receive what they would normally get when they were at work rather than just basic pay. Now, the foundations for holiday and the reason for introducing holiday into European law for workers 
and employees is so that everybody has the chance to have a break. It's recognised that having holiday is good for um, productivity, but also good and essential for health and well-being. And so um, the idea is that employees are encouraged to take holiday and the employees in these cases were saying well actually it's no benefit to us to take holiday we are actually financially to our detriment because when we're on holiday we get paid a lot less because we're only getting basic pay when we're at work we can earn commission or overtime and all of those sorts of things and what the employment appeal tribunal had to decide was whether the pay that an employee should receive during those four weeks of annual leave should be their basic pay or whether it should include things like overtime and commission. The definition of a week's pay is set out in the Employment Rights Act. Within the Employment Rights Act, it specifically excludes some overtime payments. Now, what the Employment Appeal Tribunal have done in this case is they've ruled that actually, yes, where there is an employee who's required to do things like compulsory overtime, then they should receive their normal rate of pay during holiday, not just their basic pay. So it should reflect exactly what they are receiving. The Employment Appeal Tribunal decided to disapply parts of the Employment Rights Act, which excludes certain overtime payments from the definition of a week's pay. And the reason that they did this was so that they could purposely construe European legislation in line with UK law. So what what does this actually mean for you if you're an employer or an employee? Well, it means that you are required to look at exactly how much you're paying your employees whilst they're on holiday and it should be a reflection of what their normal pay is. This is something that you may need to get some further advice on going forward to ensure that you are meeting all the requirements because there was also a ruling that where an employee receives expenses for travel time, which are in addition to their normal expenses, so it's additional payments for travel as part of their normal pay when they're working those should also be included within the holiday pay calculation. What's excluded is the overtime which is not a compulsory requirement so overtime that employees do of their own volition are excluded. So what should you do practically as an employer? Well I would have a look and see if there are any employees on your staff or workers who actually would be affected by this ruling. So have a look to see if there's anybody whose normal pay or the pay that they receive regularly when they are working exceeds their basic rate of pay. So if that's because of overtime or or other payments. And then look at what you're paying them regularly for their holiday. If you pay them already a figure that reflects their normal pay, then you're okay. If you don't, then it'd be worth taking some advice about what you should be including and how you go about calculating their holiday. There has been some concern also in relation to this case by employers about whether employees would be able to obtain payments that are backdated um, as far back it could have been as far back as 16 years. Now fortunately for employers the Employment Appeal Tribunal decided that actually claims in relation to underpayments of holiday should still be within the normal rules in relation to the three-month period. So in an employment tribunal, there is a strict three-month time limit, in most cases, that is, for pursuing a claim. So with regards to unlawful deductions from wages or underpayments, employees need to bring a claim within three months of the last of a series of deductions. The worry was that the Employment Appeal Tribunal would say that each and every 
failure to pay the full amount of holiday would be a series of underpayments and therefore employees would be able to link those together. They actually clarified in this case that if there is a break of three months between each underpayment, then that would be when the period for recovering the money would cease. So let's take, for example, an employee who took holiday in September and then prior to that took holiday in July, but then prior to that hadn't taken holiday until January. So there would have been a break of more than three months between their January holiday and their July holiday. And therefore, there would have been a break in the series of underpayments of over three months. So the employee in that case would be able to pursue a claim in the employment tribunal for their underpayment within three months of their last holiday for any underpayments for the previous three months. So in the example I gave, so for July and September, as long as that employee pursued a claim by December, then they would be able to pursue their deductions for July and September. Now, obviously, you don't want this to be happening to you. You don't want a series of claims from employees. So again, it's really important, in my opinion, to seek advice about what your potential liability could be and how you go about dealing with that. And it may be that it's necessary to seek assurance from the employees that they won't pursue claims and then you give them a backdated payment for the periods of underpayment. But this would obviously have to be a decision that you make across the board so that all employees that are potentially affected can be dealt with. It should be noted that the Employment Appeal Tribunal granted the parties leave to appeal in this case and therefore it is likely that we will have a further decision of the higher courts in relation to this matter which will definitively hopefully definitively give us an answer in respect of the outstanding issues so watch this space whatever your situation with regards to employees and holiday pay i would strongly recommend that you have your policies reviewed at this point and that you continue to review them on an annual basis going forward to ensure that they reflect the current position in relation to the law and that you're not going to fall foul of employment tribunal claims for long periods of underpayments. This is of course something that I can help you with and I'd be more than happy to have an initial discussion with you by email, Skype or on the telephone so that I can put your mind at rest and help you to develop a strategy of how you're going to deal with this. So rather an interesting week for me as an employment lawyer, another reason why I enjoy the job so much. That brings me on to my HR best practice tip. For those of you who tuned into episode nine of the podcast, you'll know that I'm currently focusing my HR best practice tips on recruitment. As I've said before, recruitment is a really important thing for your business. And as, as the economy is starting to pick up and people are starting to recruit, it's something that you need to consider quite carefully in order that you get it right, you get the right person and you avoid any issues. So this week's best practice tip in relation to recruitment is to get your job description and person specifications sorted right at the beginning. When you make the decision to employ somebody new in your department, whether they're fulfilling the same role as somebody who already works there or if it's a new post that you're creating, it's really important to have in mind what their job description is going to be and to create a separate person specification. You'll probably find that once you've got the job description, the person specification 
comes quite easily. So those are the things, the qualities that are required for the tasks that they need to undertake. Also included on that would be the skills or experience and um, training or education that you would need for them. The reason to get your person's specification and job description in place at the outset is because then you've got a basis for deciding the kind of person that you want and to um, undertake a fair assessment. It would be much easier if you've got that in mind rather than just having a a wishy-washy idea about the kind of person that you want. You can then focus your attention on their skills on their CV or application and then subsequently in the interview. And this will help you in the long run, not only to get the right person, but to make sure that you undertake a correct, lawful recruitment process. So that's my HR practice tip. For those of you who might be undertaking recruitment now or in the near future, I do have a free help sheet which will give you some legal guidance and some practical tips on how to undertake a good recruitment process. If you'd like to receive a copy, then you can drop me an email to alison at alisoncolley.co.uk. Alternatively, you can leave a comment in the show notes at adviceforemployers.co.uk forward slash podcast where you'll find episode 10. Thank you very much for listening. I hope that you've enjoyed this week's episode of the podcast. And if you'd like to sign up for regular tips, news and hints, you can do so on my website at adviceforemployers.co.uk. Thanks again for listening. Just want to finalise by saying I wouldn't be a lawyer unless I had a legal disclaimer. So I must just say to you that the information in this podcast is for information only. It's general review and a general update. It's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances so please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast but please do feel free to contact me if you like further information or specific advice